Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. Today's episode of the show is a second dispatch from AIBS's Spring Congressional Visits Day, which is a program that gives researchers a chance to travel to Washington, D.C. to meet with their congressional representatives and advocate for their science. I had a chance to talk with a number of participants about their research, their interest in policy, and their plans for the next day's Capitol Hill visits. These events are always exciting and really quite a lot of fun. I'll include a link in the show notes for any listeners who might be interested in getting involved themselves. Our first interview of the day is with Perry Lee Pipkin, a master's student at the California Botanic Garden, which is associated with Claremont University, and Connor Filson, who's a PhD candidate at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a graduate fellow at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory. Let's get right to the interview. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Um, so let's talk a little bit uh, first about uh, what each of you study um, and work on. So why don't you just you know pick whoever would like to hold that microphone first and tell me a little bit about what you do. Well, I'm Perry Lee, and I study botany. Um, I'm currently working on a floristic inventory of the Silver Peak Range in remote western Nevada. And I'm focusing on a rare plant that only grows in the salt marshes in that area. I'm really interested in plants that are kind of having a conservation crisis. Um, <laughs> I didn't know there were salt marshes in Nevada. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's a desert salt marsh. They're pretty special groundwater dependent ecosystems. They're pretty rare. Um, and this area just happens to be uh, have robust geothermal energy potential as well as lithium mining potential. So compromises the ability for these plants to continue their existence in this area. And they're only located in that one area? Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the plants in the area are rare endemics. So mm -hmm. they um, they occur nowhere else on Earth. And um, yeah, so building a mine on top of their habitat would effectively wipe them off the face of the planet. Yeah, that, I mean, that, and that's got to be really difficult, especially with the big push for electric vehicles and, you know, all other uses of potential uses of lithium and stuff like that. Yeah, it's really challenging. Um, I think that moving forward is going to look, we're going to see a lot of these conflicts moving forward. And I think it's up to policymakers and people to figure out a way to pursue renewable energy without compromising biodiversity and causing extinction crises. And, and how is that species doing right now? Um, it's doing okay, actually. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's not not right. being not being destroyed by or climate change or threatened by it as yet. It's 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 probably struggling with climate change because most things tend to be. But right. I'm not not an expert with its climate change biology. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a rare plant, so it's not doing wonderful. It has a very limited distribution, but it's thriving where it is. And it's okay. a very small wetland area. That's great. Um, Connor, why don't we talk about I, I, marmots, I assume. Marmots. We study marmots. Yeah. Okay. So uh, where do you study marmots? Uh, so we study them in the high alpine of Colorado, up in the, where you go skiing, there are marmots, and we study them there. Okay. And so um, what in particular do you study about them? Yeah. So we're interested in the evolution of social behavior. Why do marmots, and not just marmots, but all uh, species interact with each other? What are the consequences of that? What are the drivers? Is it environmental? What are the costs of that? Is it good for you? Is it bad for you? It's, it's 
uh, important not just for humans, but but for all species. And uh, can you just tell me a little bit about marmots' social lives? I mean, my only interaction with them has been, um, you know, loud barking, you know, very clear signals that it didn't want any social interaction with me at all. Um, so what are, what are they like? Yeah, if if you've ever gone hiking in the Rocky Mountains or the Sierra Nevada, they eat your tent, they steal your snacks, um, and they they're, they're scream at you. But that's their way of communicating to each other that. A potential threat is present. So marmots are, are social out of the need to avoid predators. Uh, and so that's where the biggest benefit comes from. But there aren't a lot of benefits otherwise. So in humans, the more social you are, typically the better off you are. You live longer. Um, you, you might have more kids. You live a happier life. But for marmots, that's not the case. The more connected a marmot is, the more social a marmot is. They don't live as long. They don't have as many kids. They're more likely to die in hibernation but they are better at avoiding predators in the summer. So it's this complex trade-off for sociality in marmots. So, is, so the, the basic benefit is not getting eaten, but at the expense of other things. Do they share resources? They're not. The marmots, the yellow-bellied marmots we study in Colorado aren't like meerkats or prairie dogs. They're not cooperative. Um, they're um, kind of really quirky individuals who live together to, to scream and yell to avoid predators. Yeah, I mean, better, than, better to hang out with a bunch of marmots than to be eaten by a fox. Yes. Yeah. For all the costs, there's the pros outweigh the cons. Gotcha. Um, so let's go ahead and talk uh, policy a little bit. And, you know, I'm kind of interested in what sparked each of your interests in policy um, and, you know, kind of what brings you here today. Uh, that's a good question. I've, I think I really enjoy being, you know, hands-on doing the science, but at a certain point we need to communicate that not just with the general public, but with decision makers and in key stakeholders. So I've enjoyed the opportunity to, uh, broaden our skill sets and, and develop these new skills to, to communicate to different folks. Yeah, I'd like to second those opinions. Um, I, I've never, I don't have much experience with policy or science communication, so I'm here today to learn a lot. And um, I'm really interested in how, what the future is going to look like for a lot of these plants that I study and these places I study that are compromised by extraction and um yeah i'd like to see if there's room for both human development and the continued of the existence of plant diversity on this planet and how we can move forward with that yeah absolutely those both sound you know very exciting so um you've got some meetings lined up tomorrow uh are you are you speaking with local representative senators what's 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 on the docket we're speaking with everybody i i really enjoy the aibs training and the congressional visit days it's not just an opportunity for us to communicate not only our important science, but, but the importance of science in general to the United States. Um, but it's also an opportunity to come together and, and meet our peers and, and uh, chat science and policy and broaden our, our skill sets um, with, with our friends uh, from all over the country. So it's uh, not just about meeting with the policymakers, but this kind of like more emergent policy training is really enjoyable. That's great. Um, and so uh, what will you be advocating for tomorrow? I think broadly uh, increased science funding when not to get lost in the weeds about we need funding for this particular type of science, but but all science, whether that's via the NIH or the NSF, uh, whether that's via the DOD or the Department of Energy, it's, it's important to have this broad science funding um, not only to facilitate investigating the world and and it's many quirks and nuances, but also to maintain international competitiveness, um, to keep uh, our, our American universities strong and, and really breaking uh, 
breaking through on, on these knowledge barriers to understand more about the world around us. One last question then is, um, uh, what's it been like? Uh, you know, how are you looking forward to it? Are you terribly nervous? Are you excited? Have you been to DC before? Um, you know, what's what's this experience been like for you? Um, this has been really exciting, but also overwhelming. I have no experience in DC, so this has been pretty wild. Um, I don't know what to expect tomorrow on on the Hill, but I'm. I'm very interested to see how it's going to go. If I can handle the peer review process, I feel pretty confident to handle a congressional meeting. Yeah, reviewer B is not going to be sitting in. Uh, yeah, reviewer, no, reviewer, reviewer two, two, two. Yeah, no reviewer two is there. Hill. Right on. Okay, well, thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. And next up, I chatted with Valentina Alvarez, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow and an American Association of University Women dissertation fellow. Let's go to that interview. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I was hoping we could first chat a little bit about science and, you know, what you're working on, um, you know, for your PhD. Yeah, well, I'm doing my PhD in Hawaii, and uh, the Hawaiian archipelago is extremely isolated. It formed where it is today. And so all of the wildlife there had to either fly or swim there or be dispersed by wind or float. And so because of that, there are no native reptiles, terrestrial reptiles in the Hawaiian archipelago that we know of. And there are an abundance of them today. And that's what I study. I study the reptiles that have been introduced to the Hawaiian archipelago. I investigate how they got there, when they arrived, where they came from, and how they're moving between the islands. And so this is a really a sort of invasive species hotspot, is it not? It, yeah, it's called, well, it. It is, yeah. It's known as the invasive species capital of the world. It's been dubbed that. So it is like a common occurrence there. Right. Um, what, what kind of lizards are you studying in particular? Yeah, so I, one of my lizards is Anolis sagrii. It's native. It's, the common name is the brown anole. It's native to the Caribbean. It was introduced to the southeastern United States uh, and many other places. More recently, uh, the Southern California, too. Um, but it was originally introduced to Hawaii, to the island of Oahu, and was collected in 1992, so pretty recent. Uh, and I'm guessing it didn't swim there. No, it did not swim there. So there are some theories as to how it got there. The botanical trade is one of the things that gets brought up a lot. Um, and with some preliminary work, it was discovered that the the lizard actually arrived there from Florida, which is another introduced region. And so exactly the mechanism and the pathway is un unclear, but that's what I'm trying to figure out with my dissertation. Okay, so uh, they could theoretically get there by, you know, hopping a ride on a plant or something like that. Yeah, on a plant, on a boat, on a cargo plane, um, any, any of the above. An abundance of possibilities. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering, you know, uh, what brings you here and, and how long did it take you to get here from Hawaii? Yeah, uh, so I'm here today as uh, a part of the um, American Institute of Biological Sciences. Yes. Okay, and um, I'm here to learn how to communicate science to the general public. That's really my big, the leading reason as to why I'm here today, participating in this workshop, but also to advocate for funding in science um, in the federal government. I am funded by the federal government, and uh, so I think that it's extremely important. Um, oh yeah, and then how I how long it took me to get here? Um, yeah. Like uh, about 16 hours of travel time. There's two layovers, which is actually pretty good. 
<laughs> Wait, you're the only person who's ever spoken positively about layovers. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, oh, there could comparatively, be more. there could be more layovers. Oh, so. no, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, you've got some meetings lined up for tomorrow, I assume, in, in um, various congressional offices. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm meeting with um, rep, uh, staff for both of the senators in Hawaii tomorrow. Oh, that's exciting. And wow, I, I pity them. They must have to make that set of flights fairly often. Yeah, I, that's something that I wonder about myself. <laughs> okay, that, that's really cool. So um, you'll be sharing the message of the importance of science funding and you know its, its relevance for the ongoing research initiative. Yeah, exactly. And to support the, the budget for science and the National Science Foundation in particular. Great. And, um, you know, do you have any uh, thoughts, you know, maybe later in your career of pursuing um, science communication or science in the intersection of public policy? Um, what are you thinking about? Yeah, uh, so I am particularly interested in the research side of science, but I think that it's important and the reason that I'm here is because I want to become a better communicator of the work that I'm doing. And though I don't want to necessarily focus on communications, I definitely want that to be an aspect of what I do um, because I think that it's just it's as important as doing the research itself. So I'm just working on those skills, really. <laughs> right. I appreciate that. And, and as, as one who often holds a microphone, I, I, I think you're right. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. And last but certainly not least, we close out this episode of Bioscience Talks with an interview of what I'm calling our Midwest contingent, consisting of Catherine Chartone from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Lauren Orton from Sauk Valley Community College, and Rebecca Cotton, who's at the Iowa Lakeside Laboratory. Let's go to it. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. So we've got, you know, we've got a group of three here. I was hoping we could chat a little bit about what you work on on a day-to-day -day basis, so science stuff. Um, why don't we go ahead and you can get us started, Catherine, and we'll, we'll take it from there. Yeah, I'd love to tell you a little bit about my work because it's very specific to the Midwest. I work in tall grass prairies, thinking about how we can better restore and conserve those ecosystems, um, specifically in the context of global change, such as novel land use histories and climate that these ecosystems are experiencing. That's great. And so there's not quite as much um, tall grass prairie left as there once was, correct? Absolutely not. Um, the best estimates we have are that only one to 2% of tall grass prairie remains from its original extent. That would have been all the way from Texas through Wisconsin and even up into parts of Canada. Okay, great. We'll probably chat a little bit more about that in a moment. Lauren? So I am currently a professor of biology at Sauk Valley Community College in Dixon, Illinois. But prior to that, my research interests were in bioinformatics and I would sequence DNA from cool season grasses and look at their chloroplasts. <laughs> cool, I need to ask you, what's a chloroplast? <laughs> you know how plants can take sunlight, water, carbon dioxide and turn it into food? Yes. That is where the magic happens in the chloroplast. So I, they have their own unique set of DNA outside from the rest of the plant. And so I would sequence that DNA and look at it. I would spend hours looking at nucleotides on a computer screen, but it was fascinating. Yeah, that sounds cool. Rebecca? So I am a social scientist by training. I teach prairie ecology and uh, geographic information systems courses for our field station in Northwest Iowa. And the majority of my time when I'm not teaching classes, I am working with undergraduates 
to help them learn how to become field scientists. That's really cool. So how do you make the move from social science into ecology? You spend a lot of time outside. <laughs> uh, actually, my professional experience outside of my academic life, I worked for about 15 years in watershed management, water quality monitoring. So I have a professional background that I brought to my, uh, my advanced degree. Right. And right now your, uh, your, your river house is underwater. <laughs> yes. My family's uh, uh, weekend home on the Mississippi River is the, the house is not underwater, but the road to get there certainly is. And we're waiting to see what happens when the river crests. That's uh, a, a common Midwestern challenge, I, I think. Absolutely. It. Um, so uh, we're here for the Congressional Visits Day. And I was hoping we could chat a little bit about uh, when each of you got in, interested in any way in public policy, um, you know, what excited you about it? and what brings you here? I think I've always been interested in the intersection of science and policy because most of my science experience is working outside and working with land managers and, and real people dealing with problems in, on their land. Um, and so thinking about how our science can better be used to inform policy to solve these problems that communities and real people are experiencing is, is of interest to me. And so I'm, I'm currently still in school and exploring these options, but thinking that if I can find a career that allows me to both be doing really cool science, which I'm interested in in and of itself, but also make sure that that science has some implication for, for peoples and communities. Great. Well, I grew up in a family that was very policy and politically involved. And so there was an expectation from an early age to make sure that I was not only an informed voter and an informed citizen with a civic duty, but that I would definitely act upon that. And so from a very early age, I was brought out to, you know, um, union events or things like that to advocate for policies to benefit workers um, and whatnot. So uh, something I've had a passion for my entire life. For me, the change happened in my mid-20s. I actually pursued a master's degree in public policy, focusing on environmental policy as a uh, farm kid growing up in Iowa, I've seen the transformation to our landscape and the long-term effects to our environment. Um, spending time working in water quality and watershed management and understanding the changes that are necessary and how you go about implementing those changes means you need to understand how laws, policies, and rules are made and being a part of the process. And so I incorporate that now in my teaching as an academic uh, in, the, in the work I do now. That's really exciting. So um, we've got some meetings set up for tomorrow. Um, who, with whom are you going to be chatting and um, with, well, on what topics will you be discussing things with them? Great question. So for me, my, uh, I'm a constituent of Senator Charles Grassley and Senator Joni Ernst and Representative Ashley Hinson. And uh, Chuck Grassley has, uh, you know, as a farmer from, from uh, New Hartford, Iowa, he's essentially my neighbor. And uh, he's, I know, has interests in uh, not only maintaining the, the bioeconomy and the ag economy of our state, but, but looking at, um, you know, fiscal responsibility as Senator Ernst does as well. Um, but then also thinking about uh, jobs and STEM ready skills in our state. We're in a, in a state that uh, the population is uh, in a bit of a decline and aging as well. So we have uh, technology needs, we have biomedical technology needs, uh, the bioeconomy itself, but then also thinking about how we prepare young people not only to take on those types of careers, but to take on jobs and stay in Iowa.
Um, from Wisconsin, I'm going to be meeting with Senators Ron Johnson and Tammy Baldwin, as well as Representative Mark Pocan. Um, and similar to the situation in Iowa, in Wisconsin, we are losing a lot of our young, highly educated science and engineering um, degrees to jobs elsewhere. We have about 36% uh, of our students at the, the undergraduate and graduate level getting degrees in science and technology, but they only about 5% of our workforce in science and technology jobs. And so, so we're losing those, that, that knowledge uh, of science and technology in our state um, to elsewhere. And so I, I'm really interested in talking to my senators and representative about how we can better both train, but also uh, recruit and maintain a science workforce in Wisconsin. And so from Illinois, I'm going to be meeting with um, Representative Lauren Underwood and Senators Duckworth and Durbin. Um, and really, we're going to focus on talking about National Science Foundation funding. The state of Illinois is usually pretty good about supporting those types of things. And so um, I'm really excited to just kind of speak with them and show them a real life example of someone who's benefited from having NSF grants to fund my research. So. Yeah, and I, I think something that all of you have highlighted is the importance of getting that funding out into the Midwest so that it can be something that will help retain the workforce, um, you know, and, and STEM knowledge into the future. Yeah, I think we have ample opportunity in this part of the world. The Midwest has one of the best uh, freshwater resources in the country. Um, we have a bunch of our agriculture in the Midwest. And I think that it's clear that there's a need for technology and science to be happening in this part of our country. And not only that, we have uh, the, the again, demand for, for resources on a global scale that we are able to contribute in. When you think about the city of Madison, Wisconsin, and the biotechnology hub that, that exists there, when you think about the technological advancements, we have data centers that are now growing, not just corn in Iowa, but we have data centers. We're working with technological firms. We are working on uh, developing hubs for biotechnology, for nanotechnology, and being able to create opportunities for those types of companies and careers in our, in our states means we need young people with the skills and the training that those kinds of jobs demand. We need not only the technicians who can operate different types of machines, but we need the scientists and the researchers to ask big questions, to conduct their own inquiries to be able to develop products to keep those companies competitive. Okay, well, you've certainly convinced me, uh, and I'm certain that you're going to convince uh, the lawmakers with whom you meet tomorrow. Uh, thank you all very much for joining me. I realize that I'm standing in the way of your strategizing session, although it sounds like you're ready to go. Um, I appreciate very much your time. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.